If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Esther chapter 6. We'll be reading the full chapter here in just a moment or two. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew in front of you. And that black ESV Bible will have Esther chapter 6 on page 413. In John 3, Jesus meets a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and they have an interesting interaction with one another. Nicodemus tries to compliment Jesus right off the bat. He says, hey, we know that no one can come from God and, and, and not, or no one can be not from God and do the works that you do. We know you are from God. We've seen your works. And Jesus kind of cuts him off and he says, listen, you can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. You think, Nicodemus, you know what the kingdom looks like, but I'm telling you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. And, and Nicodemus comes back with a retort, kind of asking for help to understand. He says, can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter into the womb a second time? Not trying to be smart, but, but honestly asking a, a question that needs to be asked. And Jesus says to him again, unless you are born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then in verse 8 of that chapter, he goes on to use an analogy for the work of the spirit that will help us much today. He says, the wind blows where it pleases. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus makes the very obvious analogy. You don't ever actually see the wind. You you don't see it. You see the effects of it. You see it in blowing snow. You see it in driving rain. You see it in sand whipped up. But but you never actually see the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going. You only see the effects that the wind has on other things. You see it in the trees, and you see it in the leaves, and you see it in the grass, but you don't actually see the wind. The entire setup of Esther is built around this reality. We never see God. We literally never see the word of God, and we never hear of God being present in this book. And yet we are to see the leaves moving everywhere. We are to see grasses bending before him everywhere as the wind blows. Now certainly before this particular chapter, the wind was blowing, but it was harder to see. God was more hidden. The wind perhaps was blowing less hard. You heard the the leaves move every once in a while, but maybe God wasn't truly there. But here in chapter 6, we find that God is indeed present Not in the text, but in the background of the text. Moving in the text, making things happen behind everything else. And because God is here, we can learn much about how he works in our lives, even today, through Esther 6. So if you would, please read with me this wonderful chapter of our scripture. Esther, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told them about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in 
And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Ah, well, he didn't say that, but you can hear it in your head. Ah, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is the word of our God. So what do we learn about God's mysterious presence in Esther chapter 6? First, we should see that God leaves clear clues. God leaves clear clues. For some saying that God is apparently present now somehow in this text in a very mighty way might seem a bit weird. Why all of a sudden now? What has actually changed? The action seems to be going on just as it did before. People are acting, people are responding, people are reacting, consequences are happening. This is pretty normal. Why all of a sudden now do we see God? Perhaps the best way to know that God is really present and working behind the scenes here is to see all of the coincidences that happen to happen on this particular night to make all of this go the way that it does. They might not just happen, but they have to happen in order for all of these things to work. The king must have a bad night's sleep. Now, that seems like a pretty minor thing. Certainly his bed is better than everyone else's bed in Persia, but certainly your bed is better than the king's bed. We can understand why he might have a bad night. It's not like he was sleeping on a sleep number or anything. It has to be a very specific night. It has to be the night directly before Haman was to come and ask for Mordecai to be hung. Mordecai needs a long time ago to have heard of the assassination plot, and that assassination plot needs to have been thwarted. And what's more, the reward for that revealing, the reward for being faithful to the king, has to have been overlooked, which was kind of unheard of. The king is, you don't really get it from the text as we read it, but he would have been kind of in a panic because this was a normal thing for Persian kings to do. When your life is spared so that other people don't try to assassinate you and so that other people try to thwart those assassinations, you reward people handsomely for it. So it needed to be overlooked. 
Not only that, but the king had to ask above all things to do that could have occupied his time, come and read to me the book of memorable deeds. Read to me the chronicles, which no doubt he wanted to have read to him so that he might fall asleep, because these things are boring. But when he has it read, not only do they have to bring that book and read it before him, but they've got to read the part where Mordecai thwarts the assassination attempt. All of these things have to happen on this particular night. It's a bit much to think that these things just happen. All of these things coming together speak of God working his hand in all of this. Not only those things. Haman needs to get there early. Perhaps be the only one there. So that he can be the one who has to lead Mordecai around. This doesn't even include the other irony of the other twists of irony that we're going to be talking about later. There's a huge amount of coincidence and irony built into this passage. So is this clear evidence of God or not? I think it absolutely is. If you were to go and you were to talk to somebody about this particular chapter, or talk to them about Esther, and you were to say, listen, let's assume, just assume, that Esther is a completely fictional story. Somebody some time ago thought, hey, I've got a nice story to write, and, and this was an interesting thing that popped into my head. Let's, let's write this down, and, and, and let's come to chapter 6, and let's read through and count all of these sort of coincidences that need to happen. And you ask that person, you say, well, what do you think happened in the author's mind? You all have heard of authors who, who write, and they get in the zone, or, or they kind of space out, and, and they write things, and they don't realize kind of what they're writing. It just kind of comes to them, especially in fictional writing. And you can look and say, well, maybe, maybe this is part of that. Maybe all of this ironic overturning, maybe all of these coincidences just kind of flowed from the author's pen. It just naturally happened that way. It was either that, or the author purposed for every single one of these. He sat down and he thought about it and he thought this would be fun, this would be interesting, this would be a good thing to put in here, this needs to happen for this to happen. And, and they built the plot kind of from scratch, purposefully built the plot. I have no doubt that most people who write, who know what it takes to write things like this, and even most people who read things like this, would say, well, it didn't just happen that way. It was, it was clear that the author planned all of this, right? Things like this don't just come out of somebody's pen. They, they purposed and they planned it. They, they worked hard to get all of the factors to sit right before us. So, if we are to suppose that it's purposeful when the author does it, if we are to believe that this happened in the real world, if this was a real event that happened, that Esther is being recorded as actual history, which I think we all should agree on, if that is indeed true, should we not then think that it's purposeful when it happens in real life? Why all of a sudden, in real life, should we just chalk it up to coincidence and happenstance? All these things happened? Yeah, but, but things happen in real life. Yeah, things happen in literature as well. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If it's purposeful to write it in fiction, it must be purposeful for it to happen in the real world. God is behind all of these events. And it ought to be clear to us as we read all these coincidences that happen that God is standing behind them. From the forgetting of Mordecai's reward to the king's sleepless night to the very... Hasty response from Haman. 
These are nothing more than trees bending in the wind. And we are not so foolish to look at trees bending in the wind and to look at grasses bending in the wind and say, huh, that's funny. All those trees, coincidentally, are bending over at exactly the same time. I wonder why they're all doing that independently of one another. No, we look at that and we say, no, there's, there's a force that is moving them, that is guiding them, that's directing them. We are right then to see the wind blowing and the effects of this particular working of the wind as God works behind the scenes to make these coincidences. So, friends, don't overlook the work of God in your life because you don't see him directly there. Look past these things that people call coincidences in the world and happenstances in the world to see the work of God happening there in front of you. To those without faith, maybe these things are nothing but coincidences and happenstance. Maybe the things of your life, they can chalk up to a number of different random things that occur to people throughout the ages. But that is not what we do. We ought to see God's hand in in the coincidence of every time we think we've missed an opportunity and something else better happens to us afterwards. To see his hand in every overlooked good work that is then brought to light at some later time. To see his hand in every difficulty that happens to us that he brings us out of. To see that God himself has given us every good thing, even the difficulties of our life. It is by the gift of God that they've come to us for our good so that we might be built up, so that we might be able to build up others in the faith, so that we might praise God and give him thanks for all of the good that he does to us. For God gives clear clues in our lives and in the book of Esther that he is still working in our world. Point number two. God uses typical tactics. God uses typical tactics. Shouldn't we expect, if we were to come to this text and we're going to say, hey, God is now present and he is really, truly present, he's really working behind you, shouldn't we expect more fireworks that announce God's presence? Shouldn't we expect some sort of burning bush, some sort of miracle to have happen, some sort of parting of the seas? In 1 Kings 18, there's a famous passage that Elijah has with the prophets of Baal. Or as I say, Baal, but it doesn't matter either way it works. And what has happened in Israel is that they have gone completely into idolatry because of the king and the queen, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Elijah kind of fed up with this calls for a showdown. He says, listen, you're going to take a big pile of wood over to yonder hill, and I'm going to go over to this hill, and we're going to see whose God shows up to light these things on fire. So 450 prophets of Baal come, and they dance around, and they cut themselves, and they hurt themselves, and they're crying out, and Elijah mocks them. Then Elijah says, okay, your time's done. Nothing happened. Dig a trench. Dump water, dump water, dump water. Get this nice and wet. And with a simple prayer, fire comes from heaven, consumes it all. An immense miracle of God. Elijah, in the very next chapter, then runs to a cave because he is afraid of this very queen. He runs and hides. He's afraid that God wouldn't protect him. Because now the fire isn't present, that God isn't present? So he says, God shows up and says to him, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And at that moment, the Lord passed by, and a great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountain and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. Or as the King James famously says, a still, small voice. What Elijah wanted was to know where is God. We oftentimes read this and think, well, God speaks to us quietly and he speaks to us personally. But we need to realize that the passage is actually about more than that. It's about how God shows himself to people. No doubt Elijah thought that God shows himself to people in these miraculous, powerful works. And God's saying, here is a powerful work. Here's an earthquake. Am I there? No. Am I in the wind that is removing the face of the earth from before you? No. Am I in the fire that will consume everything in its path? No. It is in, as the ESV footnotes there, a thin silence. There's almost nothing there. It's not a fat silence. It's not a pregnant silence. There's almost nothing there. It's thin, thin silence. God doesn't have to shake the ground. He doesn't have to whirl the sky. He simply needs to whisper. We often overlook the work of God precisely because we are taken up by looking for the absolutely marvelous. Like Elijah, we want the comfort of God's presence that comes from such things. We think that God must appear as some sort of forked fire in the sky or a cloud of cloud that guides us during the day and a fire of pillar by night. We think that God should show up to burn a wet offering in a second or as an army of angels. But more often, he works through everyday, normal means, quietly whispering. Grace doesn't come like a bolt of lightning from the sky. This is what the church always means when we talk about an ordinary means of grace. That grace comes to people, not by God's presence showing up and you feeling it. Grace comes to people through the preaching of the word, through the practice of baptism, through the persistence of the Lord's Supper, through the prayers of the saints. God works through very ordinary things to bring extraordinary events about. This is his nature. This is the typical tactic that he uses he uses sleepless nights. He uses administrative oversights. He uses the pride of a deceitful man to bring about his ends. What God requires out of us are not exceptional things. He doesn't require exceptional things out of us. What God wants from us is simply faithfulness. That's what he wants. He wants us to have nothing else before him. He wants to be the number one thing in our life, the thing that defines us in the most certain and central terms. 
He wants us to be transformed by his word. To follow in the path of Jesus, who gave his life for others, who laid down his rights and gave his life for others so that they could do the same. To love one another and to help others follow Jesus as well. Faithfulness is what he's called us to. And it is that faithfulness that God will use to overturn the world. It was that faithfulness that God used when Paul was overturning the world. And it has not changed today. These things are ordinary things. We do not need to ascend into heaven and call Christ down. We do not need to descend into the abyss and raise Christ from the dead. We simply need to proclaim him, to live his word, and to be faithful to God. We read, we preach, we pray, we practice justice, mercy, kindness, and love, and we expect that in such small things, God will be present because that is how he works. God uses typical tactics. And thirdly, God gives right recompense. God gives right recompense. It's likely that everyone sitting in here has heard the expression, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Three different times in the Pentateuch does that phrase come up and is expounded upon in Exodus 21, in Leviticus 24, in Deuteronomy 19. We typically view it as some sort of harsh, judgmental way to talk about the bitter, painful way in which the Old Testament law was meant to go forward. But that's not actually what it's there for. It's rather an acknowledgement that penalties for sins, penalties for wrongdoings, should not be either harder or more lenient than what is due. Justice ought to always be done. If somebody knocks out a tooth or if somebody loses an eye, then it should be the equivalent of an eye that is required. Not anything less. He shouldn't just be slapped in the face, but he also shouldn't just be killed. There is an equivalence of justice. It doesn't mean exact justice, but it means right justice. It meant that Israel was to be an extension of God especially an extension of his own justice. They would always seek to give true justice, to give to each person what was owed to him. And here in this passage, we have a number of beautiful indicators of how God's justice works, of how God's right recompense always comes. First, to Mordecai. God gives Mordecai just rewards for doing a good work. We went back to chapter 2. We read at the end of chapter 2 about how Mordecai overhears this assassination attempt. And he turns it over to Esther. And Esther, in the name of Mordecai, takes it before the king. And we expect that the reading of chapter 3, as it opens, that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, we expect rightly the name of Mordecai to be present. But it isn't. Mordecai, for whatever reason, is bypassed. He's overlooked. His reward is not given to him. We are left even with the sense that because our expectation was that Mordecai should get it and Haman gets it instead, that there was injustice going on here. That Haman, for some reason, receives a reward that was rightly due to Mordecai. Yet we have here its fulfillment. God brings to light, as he needs to, the very reward that Mordecai was bypassed in. 
Friends, we ought to be sure in our belief that God will indeed give good rewards to those who do well. Mordecai has a really good example of this. He didn't complain and go to the king. He didn't start a campaign to draw attention to the good deed he did. He didn't go to Esther and say, Esther, hey, next time you're before the king, make sure you drop him a line about my reward. I know he's going to say it's in the mail, but I haven't gotten it yet. I think that we are to read his silence on the issue as a statement of faith. He trusted in God. Jesus prescribes precisely this kind of action to us. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Whenever you give to the poor, notice he expects that we are doing so, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Next time, something you do that is good is not thanked, isn't rewarded. Instead of lamenting the fact that you have been overlooked in this, praise God because he sees it. And instead of getting a reward from humans, instead of getting a piddly reward that will go away so quickly, you will get a reward from your Father in heaven. Pray that your, your good deeds aren't noticed by anybody but Jesus Christ. God gives to Mordecai in this life his reward. But obviously the focus is not here really on Mordecai. The focus is on Haman. And God gives back to Haman a just and fitting reward for his deceitful and his hateful work. First, Haman's lie of omission is returned to him. In verse 6, notice how the king words this. What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? You'll notice that he doesn't say, Haman, there's a guy named Mordecai, and he did a really good thing for me. What should I do for Mordecai? This is interesting because Haman, when he is going before the king to try and entice him into killing all the Jews, he conveniently leaves out the fact that it's the Jews that he's going after. He just says, hey, there's a certain amount of people, and by the way, a lot of money. And the king is just blinded by money. He says, money? It's like a dog with a squirrel. Money? Let's do it. It doesn't matter who we're killing. Uh, If they're insignificant, let's kill them, and you get me money. Haman's trying to deceive him. Perhaps if he doesn't tell him, and the king doesn't know, there's less chance that he'll start to ask questions. His plan works. And here, God has the king in return do precisely the same thing to Haman. Haman's plan was deceptive. The king's seems to be perfectly innocent. And as the king was blinded with money, so Haman is blinded by pride. Mordecai and his Jewish roots are left out of the discussion. So Haman walks blindly into the very trap that God has set for him. And he jumps at the opportunity. The whole presentation of riding on a horse, wearing the king's crown, is to present the man who is doing this as the mirror image of the king. That's, in the end, what Haman wants. He wants to be the minor version of King Ahasuerus. He wants people to look at him as though he is the king. This leads to the second piece of perfect retribution for Haman, that his pride leads to his humiliation. It is the very pride of Haman that makes his whole world come crashing down here. If Haman had thought for just a minute, just 
consumed just a second of his time to think, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I should back off a little bit on what I'm about to say. Maybe this would have all worked out different for him. Maybe he would have been spared some humiliation. But as it is, his pride leads to the humiliation that he was going to suffer. As Haman thinks to himself, whom would the king want to honor above me? Who could, who could possibly be receiving the blessing of the king if not for me? Imagine his friends and his wife. Imagine the people who every day work in the king's gate who know not only does he hate Mordecai, but they all know that Mordecai has refused time and time and time again to give him honor and to pay homage, even though the king requires Mordecai to do it. Mordecai has so refused, he's even gone against the word of the king. And imagine them seeing Mordecai being led around on a horse in royal robes with Haman at the front of the parade, speaking of the great honor that is due to this man. Look at this man. He is worthy of honor. Look at what happens to the man the king wants to honor. Absolutely humiliating for Haman. And it's perfect. Third, the third piece of perfect retribution for Haman is the ironic way in which Haman's evil plot is turned in on him. Haman wants three things in general. He wants Mordecai to be raised up so that everyone can see him. He made gallows 75 feet high so that everywhere in the city you could look and you could watch him hanging from him. He wants Mordecai to be lifted up so that everyone can see him. He goes to the presence of the king, wanting the king to agree with the plan that he has. The words that come out of my mouth, may the king agree to them. And he wants to be the one leading the event. And God, in his kindness to Haman, makes every single one of those things true. But like some weird monkey paw, where you wish for things and they all come true, but not in the way you want, Haman gets evil back for what he wants. He says, I want Mordecai to be lifted up, and he will indeed be lifted up, but not on a gallows, on a horse, and he will be honored in front of everybody, and everyone in the city will know. The king will indeed agree to the words that come out of Haman's mouth that morning, but it will not be the plan to kill Mordecai. It will be a plan to honor the man whom the king longs to honor. And indeed, Haman will be at the center of that event. He will be the one who leads. Notice even the wording of this the king's most noble official. He basically tells the king, I want to be the one who's leading it. There is no more noble official. Who could the king want to honor besides Haman with this great honor of walking Mordecai around saying, this is what happens to the man who, God, who the king wishes to honor. It's perfect retribution for the way his plot is turned in on him. And fourth, the great switch that happens here with Mordecai Haman and Mordecai, in one event, completely switch places. At the end and in chapter 3, Mordecai is overlooked for honor. That honor is instead going to Haman. And now that is completely reversed. Haman expects the honor. But instead, the honor goes to Mordecai. They have completely flipped places. In chapter 3, the plot to kill the Jews comes to us. 
It is sealed with a signet ring. The inevitability of it is written on paper. It is irrevocable. The law will go forward. Mordecai knows that the sword hangs over his head, and it is only time, only time before his death comes. And now at the end of chapter 6, we have his wife and his counselors say this, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Scholars, certain commentators have taken this to mean they must know the, the background story between Haman and Mordecai, between the Amalekites and the Jewish people, and, and now they, they get the sense that the Jewish God is winning, so certainly if the Jewish God is winning, he's going to win. I think it's much more simple than that. They're saying, if on Tuesday the king honors a Jew above everybody else, how foolish must this king be to kill that Jew on Friday? It makes him look like an idiot. Your plan's never going to work now, Mordecai. Or your plan's never going to work now, Haman. It's never going to work. He's just honored this Jew. And this is the main Jew you wanted to kill. There's no way it's going to work. Your plan is done for. The sword now hangs not over Mordecai's head. The sword hangs over Haman's head. And just as Mordecai didn't know how close he was going to be to death this morning, now Haman doesn't realize how close he is to death this morning, which takes up chapter 7. In chapter 4, we find that when this news is given to Mordecai, he laments, puts on sackcloth and weeps. And now Haman returns home with mourning and with his head covered. They have completely reversed places. God, friends, always gives right recompense. He always gives right repayment. He always gives good and true justice to his creatures. His justice is an eye for an eye, and it is a tooth for a tooth. So let us trust his judgment. Trust it. We will get the rewards that are due for our good works and the evildoers, those who seek evil and sin and long to practice it, will get theirs as well. And we can at times be impatient for these things. When you look around the world and you see that evil is prevailing, that wrongdoers go free, that what is right and good and true is oppressed in this world, especially when that is personal to you, we can become impatient. And we can wonder, why does God allow such things? Several centuries before this, a man of Israel wondered the same thing. His name was Habakkuk. And he looked around Israel and he saw bloodshed, and he saw oppression, and he saw idolatry, the same things that Elijah saw. And he cried out to God and he said, God, how can you allow such things? And God said, oh, oh don't worry. Don't worry, I, I'm going to punish my people for their sins. As a matter of fact, I'm bringing the Chaldeans, I'm bringing the Babylonians to hurt my people, to show them how serious I am about what they're doing. Habakkuk, hearing this, responds to God in verses 12 and 13. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. 
your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one more righteous than himself? He, he looks at God and he says, okay, I, I'm glad that you're doing something about the sin in Israel, but how can you use the Chaldeans to do it? If Israel is sinful, the Chaldeans are ten times as bad. How can you possibly use them? How does this work? And you can tell Habakkuk's wading into this with all the carefulness he can. You're my rock. You are everlasting. You know better than I do, but this doesn't make any sense. God says this. I'm going to use the Chaldeans, but the Chaldeans are going to get theirs. Don't worry. I will not allow the Babylonians to go unpunished for what they're going to do. He finishes by saying this. The Lord answered me. Write down this vision, the vision of the Chaldeans being destroyed. Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it since it will certainly come and not be late. It's like, listen, I want everyone to know that I'm calling this before it happens. I will crush the Chaldeans. I will crush the Babylonians. Write it down. Make it evident. Don't hide it in fancy language. Make it as clear as day. Put a notice on the bulletin board. It's going to happen. And even though I delay, wait for it. He says, look, his ego, that is Babylon's ego, Nebuchadnezzar's ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by faith. The answer that God gives us, two important outcomes. First, we are righteous only by faith. This is the key component to the New Testament, but it is the component to every single piece of Old Testament literature. You are righteous only by faith. It is not your deeds that make you so. It is not our actions that are credited to us as righteous. God tells Habakkuk, it is not the one who makes it right who will be righteous. It's not a mighty man who is going to come and end the Babylonians that I need. What I need is for you to wait for me. What I need is for you to trust that when I said I will do it, that I will do it. And that is your righteousness. That is your deed. That is what you do. You trust in my word. This is precisely a passage that Paul picks out when he talks about the gospel. You do not make yourself righteous. Your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before God. But we trust the word of God that says that there is one coming who will crush the serpent's head. We trust when he said to Abraham that there is a seed that is coming from you, that seed is none other than Jesus Christ. And though he delayed, wait for it, for he is sure to come. And when he comes, he takes away our sin. When he comes, he overturns all of the wickedness of the world, turning it back on itself. It is the wickedness of the world that God uses to bring our justice, to bring our righteousness it is only because wicked and evil men decided to crucify Jesus Christ that we have redemption today. This is the gospel. 
Not that we work for our righteousness, but that it is a free gift of God secured for us because Jesus Christ has accomplished something for us. Our redemption, our forgiveness, and all the mercy that flows from it. Trust in that judgment, and though he delays in his return, wait for it. And secondly, if it is by faith, then such faith must be willing to wait on the word of the Lord to come to fruition. We must show our faith and our patience. We wait and we wait. We know, as Abraham knew in the book of Genesis, that the judge of all the world shall do right. And if we are righteous only by faith, we must trust in his judgment even when that judgment is delayed. So be patient with God. We don't know why he delays. But I guarantee you the reason why he delays is so it's better and so it's sweeter. Mordecai isn't given much play in the sixth chapter, precisely because it's not really about him. And you can read this and think that he's kind of nonplussed about the whole thing, that, that he doesn't really care about all of this. But if you don't think that that man hopped up on that horse very, very quickly, and if you don't think that he had a huge grin on his face while Haman, of all people, was walking him around, you need a better imagination. Because there's no way that this was not the greatest moment of that man's life. And there's no way that Haman sneaking peeks up at him didn't have Mordecai's eyes pinned on him the whole time. How do you like that? Mordecai is overlooked. He's bypassed. And this man's hatred of him seems to be leading to the downfall of his people and, and here so close to the end of Mordecai's life. But given how it all worked out, I guarantee you that Mordecai would take all of it again in a second. All of the worry, all of the mourning, all the lamenting. He'd go through it in a heartbeat so that the beautiful justice, the beautiful irony that is laid down by God here would come to pass all over again. Friends, so it will be with us. When we see the end of all things, when we see God fix everything and all of the worries that you've had, all of the trials that you've gone through, all the temptations that you succumbed to, all the evil that was done to you, all the lies that were spoken about you, all the blasphemy that came down upon Christ, all of the persecution of the church, all of the evil of the world will be so unraveled in such a beautiful way that we would say, it was good. Justice has been done. We will applaud it. We will see that it is beautiful and we will wonder why we would ever want it to be any other way. Friends, right now we must be content to not be able to see the Spirit when he moves. We must be content to hear the Spirit. We must be content to watch him bend trees. But that doesn't mean we ought not to see the Spirit truly working in our lives. We ought to see it in the small movements of the vine of God around us. Moments of faith here, perseverance there. Somebody hoping rightly in the gospel. Somebody persevering through trials. Somebody repenting of evil. 
Do not see such work and think that this is just the normal course of human events. These are normal things that happen. People just do this. People feel guilty, and so they say they're sorry. And, and people sometimes have faith. People have faith all the time, so it's really not that big of a deal. No, friends, see these for what they are. They are the non-negotiable miracles of God, the work of the gospel in people through the work of the Spirit in people. The shaking of the leaves on the trees is nothing less than the blowing of the wind. When you see that, realize that no one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And as of now, we might only see the leaves move. But we will soon know the presence of the Lord in his fullness. And our faith will no longer be faith, but it will be turned to sight. And as we long for that day, friends, hold fast in the faith. Await the judgment of God. Persevere, for the righteous will live by faith. Let us pray. Father, we do not understand your timing, and often in our limited understanding, we would have had you act differently. We would have removed trials from our lives. We would have removed difficulties from our lives. We would have increased the joy and the fun. We would have increased the happiness that we might have had in this world. But we understand, Father, that you have reasons and purposes behind all of these things, and in the end, it will always be better. So let us be honest enough with ourselves to admit that in these times when we doubt you, that you are good, wise, and true, and you will give us all that we need as we need it. Give us your grace, even as we await the good that you have planned. We pray this for the glory of Christ's name. Amen.